give, I just want to say hi. Uh, my name is John. I'm the campus pastor here at the center. And if we've not met before, it's really good to be with you. Uh, you picked an awesome day to show up to church today um, because we're in week two of what we're calling Zero Faith, a series that, series that kind of unpacks our vision. And our vision here at the church is to see zero lives unchanged by Jesus. It's incredibly ambitious, but incredibly realistic when it comes to the kingdom of God. Um, we've been walking through, and again, I may not know every single one of your names or every uh, one of pieces of your life story, but here's what I know. Last night, I got really good sleep, and I'm really excited about today. And so I just want to put that out there, and it may, we may be here for at least two hours. Um, no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Um, don't know how to recover from that, actually. But here's, here's the deal. I, I don't know what your relationships are like. I don't know if you have conflict in your relationships. I don't know if your marriage is really good or your dating relationship is really bad. I don't know if you're single and choose to be or single and definitely have not chosen to be. But here's what I know. All of us know what it's like to get the silent treatment. You ever had this, right? You're in an argument or you're in some kind of debate back and forth. You may be in a heated conversation. It's emotionally charged and you're angry. And then all of a sudden, the other person just kind of shuts down. They don't say anything, but you know they're fuming on the inside and some part of them is just about to pop off, but they leave the room and they give you the silent treatment. Maybe days go by, maybe weeks go by in which you don't speak to this person or maybe you got a family member like this. It's like, I'm not gonna call them for a while. I'm not gonna email them back. I'm not gonna reach out to them on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, any of that. I'm just gonna give them the hardcore silent treatment. Now, women, you're the worst at this. I just got to tell you because uh, science, not me, science and my experience, but science proves that around 80% of women express pain through silence and through withdrawal and through isolation. And men are kind of the opposite. We're like, we're going to tear something apart. Like we're going to throw something or hurt somebody, like it's much more out there and present. Well, there's something that happens in the recipient of the silent treatment that I never knew before. I don't know if you know this, but there's a part of the brain that fires up when we receive the silent treatment. It's called the angular circulate cortex. And that's a real fancy way of saying this little piece of the brain called the ACC uh, fires up when we were kind of experience the silent treatment we experience rejection. We experience someone pushing us away by using silence and going quiet. I don't know, again, your story. I don't even know your spiritual journey. But here's what I know about my spiritual journey is that I have had moments where my spiritual angular circulate cortex has fired up at God. I have had moments in which I'm like, God, where are you? Like there's hard seasons or there's times of pain or financial issues or relational breakdown. And I, I'm curious at times. God, where are you in the hard season? Because it seems that, I don't know what your experience is, but sometimes for me, in a hard season, God goes quiet. God is silent. I don't hear him. I don't experience him. Uh, Desert fathers in the Christian faith of old talk about the dark night of the soul. This whole idea in which God feels like he's withdrawn or pulled away and so some of us maybe even describe our own spiritual lives like this, that, that following Jesus is much more of an ebb and flow of his presence and voice when we really would like it to be a waterfall. Like, I, I don't want to have days where it's kind of in and out or, or his presence and his voice is there and then, oh my goodness, a hard season pops up and he's not there. But more like a waterfall. And, and I've asked the question, like you probably have, is am I doing something wrong? Like, if God is distant or, or silent I don't hear his voice. I'm not encountering his presence. What did I do? 
And where did I go wrong? What am I missing in this hard season? Where is God? And I know all of us have asked this question before. It doesn't matter if you're a person of faith or just exploring faith today. We've asked this simple question. Why do hard seasons, seasons seem to drown out God's voice? Why do hard seasons, why do difficult circumstances have a way of drowning out God's voice? We know that he's speaking, he's active. We sang about it, he's alive, he's not dead. So he is speaking and moving and, and acting, but at times it seems that suffering, physical pain, divorce, financial problems, all of these things we could list as being obstacles seem to drown out God's voice. And luckily we're not alone in that feeling. Luckily, we're not alone in the fact that you and I need someone to point us in the direction of, okay, what do we do? How do we keep hearing God's voice and God's presence? How do we experience that even in hard seasons? And last week, we studied a guy named Elijah. Now, if you're familiar with Elijah, you're also probably familiar with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. In the gospel account, we read about this guy who lived in a cave, not normal, who wore buckskin and was like half naked all the time. Also not normal. I don't know what your house is like. That's not normal for me. Uh, the third would be uh, like to eat locusts and honey. Again, not normal. I, I'm vegan, but that's weird. Like That's way out there. Like that's too far for me. I'm not going there. Not eating locusts and honey. That's weird. So the third thing that we know about him that was similar to John the Baptist is that Elijah was a prophet. Elijah was a guy who'd been appointed by God, set apart by God, to be God's mouthpiece in a generation. And so Elijah, like John the Baptist, was kind of a wild character. And we saw in 1 Kings 17, last week in Zero Faith, and then in the second week, we'll see what happens next. But the scene immediately before the text we're about to read is the battle, the showdown on Mount Carmel. Not Caramel, but Carmel. And I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's not spelled the way Caramel is in case you wondered how I pronounce it, right? Um, but Mount Carmel. So what's interesting about it is there's this kind of showdown happening. God versus Baal. False God, Baal, versus one true God, God, the Lord, Yahweh. And God's people get together and Elijah's a prophet says, whatever happens on top of this mountain, whoever wins this kind of cosmic battle, we will follow. We will turn the nation back to God or we will instead worship Baal. We know the story, if you were here last week or listened online, that Baal lost. And the nation, for many of them, they turned their hearts back to God. This, however, did not please the other people in the story. The two other main characters in that story are Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen, husband and wife, dynamic duo who were trying to systematically turn God's people away. They were trying to turn their hearts back towards Baal and false gods. And what's interesting is you go from Mount Carmel to verse 1 of chapter 19, a lot, has, a lot has taken place. You got Mount Carmel. God has commanded the armies to seize all the prophets, false prophets of Baal, and to slaughter them, which is like, oh my goodness. And then you keep going in chapter 19, and here's what we read. Not all this will be on the screen, so I would invite you to have a Bible or to look it up on your phone. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 says this, that Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. That's intense, like calm down Jezebel, but she is angry, like she is mad. She is experiencing what we would call a kind of jostling of power between kingdoms. 
there's this conflict going on in which God is reigning supreme. He's using guys like Elijah to show that Baal is a false god. And yet Jezebel's saying, no, no, Baal's the real thing. You need to worship him. You need to pay tribute to, to Ahab and I. You need to turn your hearts to us rather than to God. And for good reason, that makes Jezebel very, very ticked off that Elijah has led the prophets in the direction back towards God, led the other people even back towards God. And she essentially makes an oath out loud. She says, it'd be better for me to die than for me to not fulfill my promise to kill you, Elijah. It would be worse. She makes an oath, a covenant, that she is going to track Elijah down no matter what the cost. And so you keep reading, and this, like Elijah, like us, in verse 3, is afraid, and he runs for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Verse 5. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah, in this point of the story, before we continue, I mean, look at what he just said. He claimed, and he didn't even need Jezebel to do it for him. He would rather die than continue on in his life and mission as a prophet. That he's no better than the ancestors, the prophets who went before, who also, by the way, failed at leading Israel back to God. And he said, I'm no better. I mean, this Mount Carmel thing was really impressive, but that doesn't mean the whole nation's turned back. And I don't know what my role is now that these kings that you've put in place are chasing me down and trying to kill me. So he sits under a bush, a broom bush. It would have been every couple miles in the desert, there's these large kind of bushes that pop up and it was for shade and for, for shelter, even for animals and for people who are making a long journey like he was. He's walking around 90 miles at this point. So he's sitting under his broom bush and he's sweaty. He's probably thirsty. He's annoyed at God. He's frustrated and he's dead scared because he's about to be maybe really dead. Like Jezebel and Ahab have a one mission thing to come at him and kill him. They've done it to the other prophets like him. So he sits under this bush. He's near suicidal. He's depressed. He's anxious about the situation and says, God, I'd rather die. It would just be easier if you took me out and uh, let me go on then rather than let me go on. And if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, which I'm sure you do on a regular basis. If you look at the prophets and the stories of the Old Testament, prophet after prophet, leader after leader actually failed. By prophet standards and even by God's standards for the king, they failed. And even by human standards, we'd look at people like Elijah like, dude, you had Mount Carmel and you still didn't turn the nation back. Like, what more do you need? And by prophet standards as well as human, Elijah has failed. We know what it's like to fail though. We know what it's like to be in situations, whether it's at school or at work or even in our home lives in which we feel like a failure. And there's moments, even in some of us, if we open up our soul to one another, that we'd say, I thought it would be better if I didn't keep living. I thought it would be better if I just kind of ended it and, and ridded not just my own life of the misery, but other people around me, like the chore I am to other people. Elijah's at that place. He's at that point of life. And it's not just a mere work failure that took him out. It's not your boss walking up and saying, you blew this project and you're kind of sad about it for a day and then you move on. But this is something deep inside of Elijah that has yet to be resolved. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's near suicidal thoughts. So then as you continue in the story, read with me in verse five, you see that he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. 
He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave, probably was really excited about that. That was his equivalent of a Hampton Inn. He's like, yes, a cave, weird, locusts and honey probably around the corner. Like, I can't wait to get, to get in there. So he reached toward the mountain of God, and there he spends a night in this cave. Often we gloss over little pieces like that, that the angel came down, gave him nourishment, gave him strength, and then he moved on. Now, Horeb, from the place that, that Elijah's at, is another 100 miles. And we talk about ultra marathons. We've talked about that here in church. It's like that 190 miles is no joke, right? He is going for it. He's climbing mountains. He's hiding in caves, and he's running for his life. He's trying to get as far away from that hard season, that oppressive season, as possible. He's trying to run from Ahab and Jezebel. But look what happens in verse 9. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing, Elijah? God's voice calls out. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. Am I the only one left? And now they're trying to kill me too, he says. He is at the end of his rope. He's essentially saying, I've done everything that you've asked, God. I've done it all, and yet I'm still failing, and I'm still experiencing this deep depression in which I can't see a resolve to. I don't know where to go from here in this hard season. And look how God responds. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. If you know the scriptures, see, this is a reference to Moses. Moses asked, God, I want to see your glory. And Moses says, you, you can't stand my glory. I'm way too holy for you, bro. Like, I, you, can, you will die. He says this in the scriptures. You will die in my presence. It's too great for you. But he says, you can hide behind this rock. And you can watch me pass by, essentially seeing my backside. And that, even for you, is going to be overwhelming by the amount of glory that I carry as God, as the one true God. This is the exact same language that we read in Moses' story that we read in Elijah's. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Seems like an obvious place for the Lord to be. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Again, seems like an obvious place for God to show up. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Remember, fire is being a, a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament. When they left Egypt, what follows them? What leads them? A pillar of fire. God's presence was marked by wind and earth moving and fire. All these things were clear evidences of God's presence, yet God is not in these. Look in the next part of this verse. But after the fire came a gentle whisper. And the Lord tells Elijah to pull his cloak over his face. And Elijah goes out and stands at the mouth of this cave. And a voice says to him again, remember just a couple verses before, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is not very smart. He says the exact same thing as he already said, right? He reads it. He repeats it back. Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. Am I the only one left? Now they're trying to kill me too. And God says to him, go back the way you came. Take that 190-mile journey back. 
Go back to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. God speaks in this story in a way that he never does again. In a way that the scriptures don't point as being a normal method of God speaking. Yet in a hard season, God whispers to Elijah. He speaks to him. He encourages him and says, you're going to be okay. Go back the way you came. Don't run. But go back and do what I've told you to do. Continue leading people back to the way they're supposed to go. Go back. God's essentially saying in this text, go. Go back. I'm with you. I'm for you. And he whispers this. And I can just picture it almost like you, you bend down. You're trying to tell your kids something. You're trying to really communicate. You're like, I love you, buddy. I've got you. You're going to be okay. Like you may have fallen off the bike. But keep going. You're, you can do this. And parents, you know what that's like. I'm just saying, you know what's ahead for that kid. You know the potential. And that's in this same spirit how God is speaking to Elijah. God, love, God loves Elijah. He's for him. He's called him for this unique purpose to be God's mouthpiece and says, go back. Even in the hard season, you got people trying to kill you. With, your, with my courage behind you, I'm telling you, walk those 190 miles back right to where they are. And, and I'll be with you. I won't let you hang. I won't let you go. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. And the story continues on. Uh, again, I mentioned that I had some really good sleep last night. How many of you just said, yep, that was a solid night of sleep for me? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. That's a sore subject around these parts, apparently. All right. Let's uh, end service and take a nap. No. But I had a really good sleep. Now, here's the X factor. You've got quirks and weird things about how you fall asleep well, and you know that it's true. And you may not admit it in here. You've got little tweaks that you've got to make, even when you travel, to make sure you get the best amount of sleep. Now, one of those for me, the X factor me, is this little buddy right here. This little guy right here, this beautiful fan. Now, this is not my exact fan, but it's very similar, uh, very similar noise, very similar level. I've had box fans in the past. But for the last 10 years, and throughout high school, throughout college, and even in the five years of marriage, I've had to sleep with a fan every single night, whenever possible. And it's never been a problem for me. So if I go into a hotel, the first thing I check, I drop my bag and I'm like, all right, let's figure out if we can get this unit uh, to stay on all night and let the fan go. And, and uh, so that's what I do. Now, uh, that's never been a problem. Other things, if I'm traveling to our parents or even friends, make sure you got the fan in the car. It's as important as my toiletry bag. Like, make sure you got the fan. Lindsay, do you grab the fan? She's like... No, I'm like, turn around. We got to go back and get the fan. I know I'm going to get bad sleep if I don't have it. And uh, again, over the last 10 years, it's never been a problem for me until this summer. This summer, I'm traveling with a friend. We're staying in a hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. It was well air-conditioned, great room. And guess what I forgot? My fan. And I was like, oh, this is very, very bad. Like we got in around dinner time. We were having a great time. And I didn't even think about the fan until I'm laying in bed at like 11 o'clock that night. I'm like, this is bad news. Like this is something. I'm not going to sleep at all. I've got to be at a conference all day tomorrow. I've got to be paying attention. And for the whole night, I'm worried about this. And so we're about to go to bed. He's in his bed. I'm in mine. And I kind of lean over. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get very good sleep tonight. I've just got to be honest with you. He was like, that's a weird thing to say as you're laying next to me in this other bed. Like, okay, like, what do you mean by that? I was like, well, uh, for one, I'm not used to sleeping without Lindsay. It's very weird not to do that. I never get as good sleep. But two, the, the next factor on top of that is I don't have a fan. I'm going to be so 
I'm going to be so annoyed. Every door that shuts in the hallway, and, and to make matters worse, I had spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out if this particular room would keep the fan on, and it would not. Like, I don't know why people do that. Like, you can't leave the fan on. It was totally regulated room, no thermostat, nothing. It just was this on for five minutes and back off. And I'm like, I'm going to go insane or kill this roommate. Like, I don't know what I'm going to have to do. I didn't want to go to Walmart. It was too late. I wasn't going to go buy a fan. Some of you pragmatists are like, why don't you go buy one? I thought about that, okay? I, I just, it was inappropriate in the moment. I couldn't go do it. And so I said, okay, no problem. I've, I've, I faced this before, okay? I'm gonna go to the bathroom, click the bathroom fan on, slowly shut the door. The light won't even get in and the fan will just soothe me to sleep. Well, guess what's not in the bathroom? A fan, like how rude is that? Like, come on, hotel. Like, you gotta pull it together. I paid for you and now I can't even sleep in this room. And so I lay down and I was mad. I was frustrated. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get like an hour or two at best. And that's just going to be from sheer exhaustion because I can't do anything but sleep. And so I, I was explaining this to my friend. He says, bro, don't worry. I got a fan. And I was like, are you serious? Why do you not tell me? I've just went through all this work and all this trauma to try to figure out whether or not I can actually sleep here tonight. And so he, he leans over and kind of reaches in his bag and pulls out his cell phone. Bro, that is not a fan. Like that, no. He's like, don't worry, I've got a fan app. And I can just turn it on. And you can listen to it. It's gonna be perfect. You'll fall right asleep. I was like, clearly this guy's never had to sleep with a real fan. He's been on the, the fake fan route for a really long time. Like, so he turns it on. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. He turns it on. And the first sound that comes is, he's like, this is air airplane cabin fan mode. I'm like, what is that? Like, he plays, it's like, just kind of this humming. I'm like, dude, that's not going to work. I need a fan. Like, you ever seen one? I need one of these guys. And so he's like, no problem. I got a box fan setting on here. I'm like, you're kidding me. So he flips around his phone and puts it on the nightstand and turns on the box fan mode. This is one of the most, you remember Dumb and Dumber? This is the most annoying sound. Uh, like, that's what it sounded like. It was horrible. Like, that thing was just so annoyingly loud. And I was like, dude, <laughs> this is going to be bad. And so needless to say, I did fall asleep. I got about two or three hours of sleep that night. I woke up miserable. And the next night, exact same thing happened. As soon as I got home, I turned that thing. On. I was like, oh, you're so precious. Like, <laughs> I love you. I'm never going to leave you again. I'm so wrong. And uh, but that's what happened. But here, the truth about the fan for me has nothing to do with the temperature. I trust my HVAC works just fine in my apartment. I'm never, I'm never worried about that. But here's what I, I need the fan for is to drown out the noise. I need to drown out the sounds around me. And often that's what hard seasons and suffering in our life do. They drown out God's whispers. They drown out God's voice speaking to us saying, I'm, I'm for you. I'm with you. You can do this. Like I, I've got your back. I, I want you to follow me, but I'm going to take care of you in the process. And often those hard seasons, they drown out God's whisper kind of like a fan. They drown out everything around us. They distract us from the outside noises and even the inside noises in our own soul. They drown out the, the people around us that want to speak life into us, that want to encourage us and, and motivate us. They drown out our, our ability to be in community and they drown out our even desire to be a part of things like a small group or to give or to serve or to do any of these other things, they drown that out. But here's the truth from Elijah's story and probably from yours. God whispers in hard seasons. God whispers in hard seasons. 
God has a way of breaking through the noise. But you've got to be quiet enough and close enough to really hear his whisper. And oftentimes, again, I don't know what your spiritual journey is like, but I know what mine is like. And when I think about the question, where is God whispering in my life that maybe suffering or hard seasons try to, dry, try to drown out, I often think about things like money. Like I remember situations, even the last couple of years, in which I just sat down at my desk and wanted to weep because I had miscalculated a payment or overdrawn the account or all these things. And for me, it was just crippling because I was like, God, are you not providing here? Like, if you really love me, you'd give me a little extra. So when I make a mistake, it's still covered. Like, that happens for me with money. Or maybe it's for you, it's relationships. There's a marriage or a friendship or a sibling or a parent or a grandfather. And once you look at those relationships and it feels like, God, where are you? It's a hard season and you don't seem to hear him. Well, here's my tendency in those seasons. And maybe this is similar to you. In hard seasons, here's what I always do. Every time one comes up, in hard seasons, I want to heighten distraction and increase my distance from God's voice, from his presence, from his word, from his community like us. I want to heighten those distractions. I want to watch more Netflix or listen to another song or uh, scroll mindlessly on Facebook for hours and hours. I just want to kind of forget and numb the pain. I don't really want to acknowledge that I'm even in a hard season. I want to heighten the distraction, and I also decrease my distance. My God, where are you? I'm far from you right now, but I don't take steps back. And here's what God wants you and I to do. Here's Jesus' heart for you and I. Here's what God's heart was for Elijah, is to eliminate distractions, to quiet distractions, and to increase, or decrease, rather, my distance from him to decrease my distance from close, loving community, to decrease my distance from brothers and sisters like you who really love me and are for me, to decrease my distance from serving God even when I don't really feel like loving God, to decrease my distance from his word, to know what he says, to decrease my distance from moments of prayer and silence and closeness to my heavenly father who loves me and is for to decrease my distance. And often I and choose, and maybe you choose, heightened distraction, increased distance when God is saying, you need to quiet the distractions and, and decrease your distance from me because that's when life change happens. And I think about even people, even in our own church community right now, I think about my good friend, uh, Renee. Some of you know Renee, our administrative assistant, I won't put her on the spot because this is her last Sunday before she retires, but I was thinking about that and we've had some incredible conversations. But you know what I love most about Renee is that her life has not been free of some very hard seasons. If you've sat with her long enough, you know that she's been through the ringer spiritually. She's had some difficult seasons. Her family has had some difficult seasons. If you were close enough, you may even know that her family's in one right now. But through all of that, she's never chosen to heighten distraction and, and increase her distance from God. But she's moved closer and stayed tighter with God and leaned in and, and valued time in his word and valued serving even you. You may not even known that. But as I think about people like her, as I think about many of you who I've had the privilege to know, many of you don't do what I do, and I'm appreciative of that, but there's some of us who, that is our default, 
to heighten distraction and to increase the distance. When God is saying, I want you to be quiet, be still, and, and come closer, lean in, engage more. And so if that for you needs to be the next step, it's really simple. And thankfully, the scriptures point us in multiple directions, but they're all very simple in terms of what we need to do to acknowledge that. It's simple. If you and I want to choose to learn how, how to, to decrease the distance and a quiet distraction, it just starts by acknowledging that God is whispering in hard seasons. It's just a simple acknowledgement. And maybe that's a vocalized thing. Maybe it's a prayer deep in your soul. Maybe you journal. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you're in some kind of group or, or study or group of friends that meet regularly. Maybe it's just to say that. Say, man, this is really, really hard. Man, I'm in a lot of pain. Man, I didn't think this relationship would break down. Man, I need some money right now. Man, I've got some difficult situations with my kids. And I don't want them to turn out to be like a psycho. Like, when you think about that, if you start by acknowledging that God is whispering in the hard seasons, you will naturally gravitate towards quieting distractions and decreasing the distance. And it's as simple as that. Really, if you're looking for, okay, what do I do next with that? What, what do I start with? Not just acknowledging, but taking some kind of action even today. It's probably one of those two things, quieting the distraction. And maybe for you, again, that's Netflix, that's a phone, that's a bad relationship, that's a, a, a TV show. That, I mean, there's a whole list of things. I know the Spirit is probably speaking to you about what exactly that is. But for those of us, it's simple, just to decrease the distance. And maybe you do that today by saying, I want to join a group. I want to get connected with other people who also have hard seasons, but also are, are not letting that take them out and are trusting that God is speaking in it. Maybe for you, it's starting today by just submitting a prayer request. Maybe God feels far and you're like, man, I'm not going to pray for that. He doesn't care. He's not close. He doesn't know. But God does know, and he is close, and he does care. And by doing that, you're taking a step to decrease your distance. Maybe for you, it's to give sacrificially, to serve in the church or outside of the church. Maybe to, to recognize a need in your neighborhood and to just meet it. Not ask permission, to not form a committee, but to just do it. To meet the need around you, to serve the people that God has given you around. And if, if you choose to do that, you and I will know what it means to really enjoy and that sounds weird, but to find joy, in joy, find our hard seasons as a gift, not a curse. Determine that maybe the suffering I'm in right now could actually lead me closer to God than I was before. To not recognize, to not just kind of flippantly say, man, this is hard, but to acknowledge maybe God is somehow in this. And he's not forcing this on me, but maybe he can use this in me. Maybe there's something that needs to be transformed in me, but the opposite is almost more alarming. That there's some of us who face seasons in the past and will face hard seasons in the future, and we have a tendency to waste those hard seasons. To neglect, maybe God is whispering. Maybe God is still for me. Maybe God still wants what's best for me. And even in this hard season, I'm not, not gonna allow that to drown out his voice. I'm not gonna allow that to make me miss it. And friends, if we choose to lean in on, in those hard seasons to quiet distraction and to decrease the distance, you and I will hear more than ever, I'm for you. I love you. I've got you. We can do this. Go back to where you came. Keep obeying me. Follow through on what you know is right and true and good. 
Be the kind of person I want you to be. And that's the hope, not just of God saying that through the scriptures, but also of the Holy Spirit indwelling every person that says, I'm following Jesus 100%. I'm surrendered to that. And that's the hope for you. That's what Jesus wants for us, not just for me, because as a pastor, there's more seasons than I could probably list that have been really, really hard. They've been in the last year, they've been in the last decade. I mean, I can look back and see that, that even though they were hard, some of them I wasted, I'll be honest. Some of those hard seasons I wasted. I tried to live out my own strength. I was frustrated, burnt out, and tired. But there's others that people love me enough around me to say, God is still speaking. God is whispering to you in this hard season and to listen and to obey accordingly. And that's the hope for you too. That's not just the hope for me or some spiritually elite people in the church. That's a hope for every single one of us. And that's the good, the good news of Elijah's story for us. I'm gonna invite you to bow your head and close your eyes as we pray. And I just know for many of us, that first step is just acknowledging that we're in a hard season. And for some of us, it moves farther of saying, I need to quiet the distraction. I need to, to decrease my distance from God. I don't know, again, where you're at, but if you just say, man, I would appreciate, I would covet, I would love someone to be able to pray for me in that hard season. If that's you and you say, I'm in the middle of one of those, real, real casually, I just invite you to throw your hand up real quick as we pray. Yeah, thank you. So God, I just lift up these individuals who have identified, yep, I'm in that hard season. I acknowledge that God, you are still sovereign and, and supreme and you're holy, but at the same time, you're close. You're near to me. You're whispering to me. And I just need to hear from you. God, I pray that you fill those hearts with incredible courage. That you fill those hearts with incredible amounts of awareness, sensitivity, that you tune their hearts to your voice. But God, I pray for all of us today. I pray for my own soul. I pray for those of us who lead. I pray for those of us who serve. I pray for those of us who are sitting here this morning. God, would you do something supernatural, something life-changing and transforming in us, even in the hard season? Because God, you promise in your word that we will have trouble, but to take heart. You've overcome the world and we can trust in you. So God, whether we're in one or heading into one or just coming out of one, God, I pray that we would leverage the hard seasons and learn what it means to hear your whispers to us. In Jesus' name.